throughout the protests uh, that have been going on over the last few weeks uh, after the death of George Floyd, we've seen the police uh, attack a number of members of, uh, of the news media. This is not a new phenomenon. It has been happening um, for, for, for years, decades, frankly, um, uh, not only at protests, but in other instances in which uh, police and reporters come into contact with, another, with one another. Uh, but it, this is the first time I think that the public at large and a lot of our colleagues within the industry have really taken notice of it. And I think that um, it is uh, part and parcel of a bigger issue that we've needed to talk about a long time in this industry that we have not. But I think we are now finally starting to reckon with, which is the fact that racial justice is inextricably tied to First Amendment rights in this country and that it is uh, incumbent upon us as reporters and those that have to speak truth to power and to hold those that run this country accountable um, to task for the uh, uh, racial injustices that have pervaded the system uh, in the United States, not just the police system, but the political system, the education system, the economic system. It's a soup to nuts problem. And uh, for too long, I think we have allowed ourselves to um, uh, stand on the sidelines and to be timid, frankly, when we should not be. We should have been standing up for the human rights and the civil rights of our fellow citizens um, and non-citizens alike um, for much longer. Uh, I used to, to tell the story uh, that, you know, uh, when I first started at BuzzFeed, we were talking about whether or not we were going to cover uh, the, 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 the marriage equality issue and how we were going to cover it. And my argument was, you know, we should cover it as a human rights issue because uh, I would not want to be an editor or a reporter in the 1960s covering lynchings and call the Ku Klux Klan for comment. That um, was a clear human rights issue. This is a clear human rights issue and it is important that we stand up and speak on it as such. And this week I am joined by uh, Joel Anderson. Um, he is one of the best journalists in the country. He is one of the leading uh, black journalists in the country, certainly, certainly of our generation. He's a very, very good friend of mine. Uh, he has terrible taste in food, uh, but he has written quite a bit on uh, uh, racial injustice. He has written not only in uh, the context of sports or in context of, of the police, but in context of sports and other issues as well. Uh, and I think that he's uh, got a, a, an amazing sort of uh, approach to this and take on it. He's a very blunt person. Uh, he doesn't really pull his punches. Uh, and he's been, he's done everything from covering, you know, Ferguson and Baltimore to covering what's going on today. And uh, I think that um, you will find that he's got a lot of very important uh, and timely thoughts on this issue. I'm John Stanton, and this is 30, the end of the news. Well, Joel, thank you very much for uh, joining me on The 30. How you doing? I'm good, bro. What's up? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you coming on. Um, so uh, there's been some stuff going on in the news lately. Yeah, yeah. Kinda, COVID. Kinda COVID. <laughs> okay. Oh, I guess I'm a little old. It's, I'm, 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 I'm behind on the news. Is something I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, I heard, I heard that there was, um, there were some, some, some people that were getting angry and going out in the street and a little bit of protesting going on. All this, which seems to be in directly in your wheelhouse, ironically. <laughs> yeah, right, right. All this, that's, you know, this, that's like my beat, you know, angry people. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, but, you know, I said on a serious note, like you covered Ferguson. 
um, and you've covered other protests and you've covered other sort of systemic um, problems of, of racism in this country. You are obviously one of the more um, eloquent and vocal voices in our generation to talk oh. about these issues, you know? Wow. And I mean, it's, you know, it's Talking true. about me. I appreciate uh, you know, yeah. You're not just the fastest 10-year-old in universe, mm-hmm. by the way. You know? Right. That was in, 90, in, in, uh, in 88, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you've, you've, you've been worried about these things for a long time. And you, I think, unlike a lot of other people that have talked about this over the years, you've been pretty... Um, uh, blunt and consistent with how you have viewed how our industry handles a lot of, of issues when it comes to race and especially around how we handle situations like this where suddenly racism and systemic racism becomes like a big issue that everyone's talking about and sort of the failures oftentimes in how the industry has approached it. And, and I'm, I'm curious to know kind of what your I don't know, 30,000 foot take is right hmm. now on how it's being covered. Um, wow, that's a lot. So uh, I think there's a few things. One is that, you know, like in the last few days, like as we've moved forward, right? Like, you know, as we get further away from the initial outrage about George Floyd's um, death, you know, there's a lot of conversation about is this looting? Are these riots? Or are they something else, right? And there's been a lot of pictures and B-roll of, you know, uh, jewelry stores with, you know, smashed in windows <laughs> and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And whether or not, you know, you know, um, what does that say about the people that are protesting and what they're actually protesting around, right? And I know, I know, and that's how I know that not a lot has changed um, from when I was covering Ferguson and Baltimore because that was a lot of the same conversation. Like, oh, people are destroying, they're just looting and they're going into these, you know, areas and stealing, you know, uh, goods and, you know, tearing up their own communities. And so like, that's the, the, the conversation that's been going on in the last day. And I'm just like, man, we really haven't moved the ball forward yet. Like we have not talked enough about why people are mad or like centered that in these stories, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've already sort of moved on into what's happening and not how it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's like a failure of media and a failure of journalism. And I get why that happens, right? Because it's more, um, I'm sorry, three, two, one. It, it is, it, it's more interesting, more eye-catching, more dramatic to show footage of clashes and broken glass in the street and shit like that, right? In, 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 instead of investigate why are people in Minneapolis mad about this case in particular? You know, that's a much harder conversation, a much harder piece of journalism to do than to focus on smash glass. So um, that's that's one thing that like that, that I think about that they're like, oh, we really haven't come a long way. But the other piece of it is that there is a change, and I don't know if that's in media or if that's in the way that uh, law enforcement has handled media and that it seems like a lot more media members are aware of the abuses of police of these situations mm-hmm. um, where you can see that people have gotten shot with rubber bullets, gassed, and reporters are saying, hey, uh, the police are sort of indiscriminately doing this. Like they're not, this isn't like a focused effort. They're like training it in it, it, it media and people and protesters and they're not differentiating. And the media is getting a glimpse of what it's like to be a protester or a demonstrator for the mm-hmm. first time, right? And so like, they're talking about that and reporting on it 
And that is like a really new angle. And I wonder, like, I don't, obviously we're still sort of in the middle of it and we don't know what this will look like, you know, three months from now, three years from now, whatever. But you just wonder if it will open people's eyes to the idea that police are often the agitators in these situations, right? That it's, they're not, they're not a benign force when they're out there in the streets. Like they, they uh, very often they are the ones that are, you know, creating a lot of the unrest and the in raising the tension. Uh, and, and so you end up seeing all that smash glass or whatever. But it's not. So it doesn't just come out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's. It's. I don't know. I do think that like. I mean, I've been frustrated definitely with like the last like 24 hours of the way that the coverage has shifted <clears throat> so hard into like trying to make up not even to make up to trying to figure out or to explain what's happening in without ever sort of questioning that side of it in a lot mm -hmm. of instances. Right. Like I do think a lot of reporters are saying, especially in, in written media, they're saying, look, you know, um, the, this violence that started in this protest, you know, clearly was a result of like the police overreacting and arresting people or starting to pepper spray people or whatever. Um, but, you know, especially on television, like a lot of that has gotten lost and it's now just sort of like, oh my God, there's violence. And the police say that it is outside agitators or that it's anarchists or that it's white supremacists or that it's this or it's that without anyone sort of saying, well, what about your guys? Right. <laughs> like, right. like, you know, like it's like, yeah, they're, they're not like this. They're not like, um, uh, you know, totally disconnected entities that suddenly come into action when violence is happening around them. You know, like they're they're a force that are is involved in this. Right. Yeah. They're not impart. They're not impartial. They're not the referees of what's right. happening. They're not. Yeah. They're not the referees between protesters and uh, you know, uh, a big box stores. You know what I mean? Like they are. They're, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're, they're right out there in the middle of it, kicking shit up and, and getting things started. And um, I just so I remember you know, a lot of Ferguson and Baltimore sort of runs together to me now. Like I can't really differentiate, you know, mm -hmm. most nights from most nights in most places. But I remember when I got sent uh, a helmet and a gas mask and people thought, oh, that was absurd. You know, it just seemed, it seemed like an overreaction at the time because mm -hmm. it was like, man, it couldn't be that bad out there, right? And, you know, people were much more concerned about what the protesters were doing and you know, the way that they were like, you know, kind of, you know, going through the streets or whatever. And yeah, I mean, there were people that were, you know, kind of wilding out in those streets. But one of the things that we would say is like, yo, like the police are shooting tear gas at us. Or, you know, they're, they're firing on us. So people did not believe it. Like it was a very, like, well, the police didn't say that. <laughs> like, and, and, and the police would di directly, you know, uh, deny it. And yeah. then it'd come out later. Oh, no, wait, the police were shooting tear gas at us. So they were shooting pepper you know, shooting pepper spray at people and stuff like that. And so like people, it does seem in some ways that there's been a shift and that people are kind of it, coming to understand that yes, the police are in the middle of they're, they're these, these protests about police brutality are showing us the extent of the police brutality, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess the issue at this point is, do people see a problem with that, right? Because you still have a lot of people say, well, they need to shut this down by any means necessary. And, you know, they're just defending property and communities and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's sort of the next battle. Like, okay, we've acknowledged that the police are these people, you know, this force that are not necessarily, uh, you know, impartial observers of what's going on, but is it okay for them to do that? And like, that seems to be the next step in the conversation needs to be had, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that like, 
I remember watching Ferguson and talking with you when you were in, especially when you were in Baltimore. Um, and, you know, I'd seen like, at, like A16 protests back in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s in DC. I'd seen cops target reporters. Um, and at that time, um, Chief Ramsey, who is, who uh, inexplicably has been sort of used by like Obama and a lot of Democrats as this model for um, a, a kinder, gentler, more um, sensitive police chief. Um, you know, his, he, he built into his budget, they called them um, First Amendment fines. Hmm. And they, it was because he started doing mass arrests, right? Like what they would do is if there was a protest that they decided they didn't want to have going on in DC anymore, they would basically set up the, the um, you know, that orange, um, safety fencing you know mm -hmm. at either end of a block and arrest everybody on the block it didn't matter oh, if you were wow. a protester if you were a reporter there was a famous instance where like they did it in front of a hotel and the hotel was hosting um some nurses convention and like 20 nurses got arrested with a oh, what? oh yeah with a reporter from the post and they just literally had walked out of the convention to go get lunch and they walked into the middle of this protest and like they were, they, they were standing there with a with a reporter from the post, and he, they were all just like, "Well, they were like, we're just here for this conference," and the cops were like, "We don't give a shit what you're here for," and the oh. reporter was like, "I'm here to cover it," and they're like, "That doesn't mean anything," and they arrested him, and he basically said, "I don't care that it's a violation of people's First Amendment rights, I'll just pay the fine," and yeah, yeah. and and so I, I I I knew that I knew that that happened. I'd seen it happen personally. I'd seen you know cops beating on reporters. Um, at that A16 protest once, but it wasn't until Ferguson, I think, and, and Baltimore that it became um, clear to me, at least, how, how widespread that was, right? And I think we have this idea as reporters, and I think as Americans, that somehow reporters are able to go into these spaces and, and the cops pretend like we don't, we're not there, like we're mm -hmm. like a tree or some shit like that, right? You're right, right, right. <laughs> right? And, um, that's just not how it goes. And I think a lot they're of- They're very aware of our presence now um, yeah. at these things, absolutely. Yeah, and I think a lot of white reporters have assumed that because they never got attacked, um, you know, that that means it wasn't really going on or that if it was, it was like, oh, that citizen journalist, you know, that's like really an activist. He's not really a journalist anyway. Right, right, you know? right, right, right. And now they're seeing, no, in fact, this is a thing that's going on for real. Yeah, no, I mean, I see like Molly Hennessy Fisk. Well, I can't remember where I've been with her before. She's an LA Times reporter and she was reporting from the ground in Minneapolis and was there and she's like, yo, like the police actually shot at us. And it was, you you know, it, it, it's important. Like, you know, it's like, wow, thanks. Finally, people are finally coming to see that. But it is, it is very important for people like that because it, it does hit different. I mean, for me or Wesley Lowry, or whoever else, because I think a lot of people can dismiss us and say, oh, well, you guys aren't, quote, objective. You're, mm -hmm. You know, you come into here with a particular aim and you have a particular view of the police and, you know, we can sort of discount your story. But when you have white reporters, you know, white writers that, you know, become the target of police in these situations, I do think that it helps in terms of convincing people that, hey, maybe the police are out of fucking control. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this, this also, this gets at a thing that like, I've never under, I've never really understood why um, we did this. I've definitely been guilty of it myself, but um, why we as an industry have sort of made this decision that like, if you're an elected official uh, or if you're a cop, then you, what you say takes, has added yeah. weight. 
Right. It's so tough. It's so man, but man, and, and think about that because you, I'm sure you're a cub reporter like I used to at one point, and so I had to cover night cops and you know every job, right? And so, especially in smaller towns, there's not a lot of <laughs> there's not a lot of incentive for local residents to disrupt the official narrative of what happened, right? Or mm-hmm. or you know whatever. Like I mean, there's 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 all sorts of little. little Inter, you know, things are at play here but yeah well like when I worked in Shreveport and I covered night cops and it was like well the cops said this happened and they have this official doc this official looking document saying this happened that's all I got you know what I mean and maybe I have not very much time on deadline to go around the neighborhood or find the person who got arrested and ask mm-hmm. them what happened right I still got to get something in the paper and so the paper you know the police's version of events becomes the official record of events. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, that's just, I think that that definitely was like a real problem for journalism and maybe still is, but I, because, you know, we just weren't, I don't know what it is about us that made us not sort of question the way that that worked. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I, I have to admit, I was right there with, you know, I mean, as a young black man who had been stopped by the cops multiple times in my life, even I fell, you know, fell prey to that. It was like, well, I got this police, you know, uh, document here. I got the the arrest report. What else am I going to do? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm sure you probably went through much the same shit. And I don't, I don't know when that changed. I think it has changed a little bit, but you know, it's still sort of difficult to. I mean, when they're giving you this document, there's not a lot else, you know. Well, the, I, the first time I think for me that I really, I really understood it was. Um, uh, when I, I wrote, a, I wrote a, a couple stories about this Somali reporter when mm-hmm. we were at BuzzFeed and, and I wrote one story about him and um, then uh, he got, a, uh, and it kind of helped keep him from getting deported. And um, but the agent that was like, that had the case, like was pissed and had an extra grind. And like this, this, the, literally the morning that he was going to go down to the ICE office to go re-up his papers to allow him to continue to stay in the United States. Uh, he walked out of his apartment building and this ICE agent had flown from El Paso, Texas up to DC and was waiting outside of his apartment building and grabbed him and put him on a plane and took him back to El Paso and oh. was getting ready to deport him. And the only reason that anybody found out about it was because they put him in a cell um, in the detention center with another Somali and he asked this Somali to tell his lawyer to call me. And it, happened, it just so happened that his lawyer was someone who I'd worked with quite a lot. So when Molly called me, I, I was like, all right, yeah, I know who this is. And they were trying very hard to get him out of the country before I could get anything. And I, you know, I was trying mm-hmm. to talk to him uh, in, the, in the detention center and they were refusing me access. And you know, I, I, it occurred to me that like, if you are writing a story and you're on deadline, right? Yeah. You can't you can't go talk to the guy that's in lockup, right? right. Like they're not going to let you go in there and talk to the dude that they've arrested and said, "Oh, this guy, you know, um, resisted arrest, or you know, he was passing a bad check, or selling Lucy's, or whatever," right? Yeah, you no know, murder, or whatever. It doesn't matter, right? They got them in detention. They're not going to let you go talk to them to get their side of the story, and so you end up writing. Police say this is what happened. Right. 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 And then, and then why then dude has no reason to talk to you after that. Right. Like if I'm the guy that like, you know, they see the story that's been written about them, that they've not had any say in that, that their voice is not in on the front end. And they're like, fuck you. Why would I talk to you? So even if you do try to go back to talk to them, it's going to be hard. Well, even if like, even today in the position that we're in, like, you know, you'll talk to attorneys that are dealing with 
dealing with prosecutors and police agencies in, in, in a state like, uh, you know, a Southern state, I just need to say Georgia, let's just say Georgia. And, you know, they, people that are actively trying to fight cases that are in court or, you know, now, now there's been charges and now it's in the system. You know, you could have written that initial story about somebody getting arrested for whatever charge, but then the defense attorneys would be like, well, hey, don't say that I said this or I can't talk about this because I don't want it to affect my case. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want, you know, the judge or, the, the, you know, the prosecutor who has an awful lot of discretion into how these cases are handled and who gets charged with what and how difficult they're going to make it on you. They don't have a lot of incentive to try to play that out in the media because it could come back and hurt their client still. And like, that's something that I was just dealing with just in the past month, you know, and you think like, oh man, you know, the media is their opportunity to air out their, you know, air out the injustice here. And it doesn't necessarily work like that. And um, I think that another piece to this too, is that we, we come into these situations and, you know, especially as young reporters, you think, why would the police lie? Or like somebody mm -hmm. is paid. You think, oh, there's somebody like watching them. Or there's some sort of, you know, mechanism that will ensure that they won't lie. Or if they do lie, that they will get in trouble for it. And what you find out as you get older, have a little bit more experience, that cops lie all the time and nothing <laughs> happens. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're just like, it's, it's, it's just like, a, it's just as common as breathing in, in, in the profession. And so you, you're, you're thinking that they're playing by the rules or a set of rules, and that's not what's happening at all. And so, so you look at this document at this young age, you've not had a lot of experience and it seems official and you're just like, well, this must be what happened because if not, something bad is going to happen, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah we, we're, we're kind of like in, in um, condition to believe that like ultimately you don't, you know, like a piece of paper means no one, somebody's not lying. Yeah. Right, like yeah. they, put it, they put it on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, they went, it's going to go into court and the, the things are going to be at stake and, you know, reputations are on the line. But like, man, like, it, I, like and it's just been within the last decade that I became aware of the fact that often DAs and public defenders had list of cops that they did not call on anymore because they were such prolific liars on the stand. And like, no, like nothing would happen to these cops, but they would just get marked and they would just maybe not bring them in at court or something like that because well, I can't necessarily trust these guys. But like nothing would happen to them. And like that to me, that's what, what it used to be to become woke. Because people <laughs> like like you become you become aware to like all these like built-in injustices within the system that don't seem readily apparent to you. And sometimes, you know, coming up you'd hear or you'd interview somebody that had been charged with something or a defendant or somebody that had got out of the criminal justice system and they say, man, I got fucked or I wouldn't, I didn't do that or I'm innocent. And you'd be like, man, everybody in prison got a story. Everybody in jail right. said they didn't do it. But like, you know, it's worth, <laughs> a lot of those people are not necessarily lying. I mean, their credibility, you know, it, they've got just about as much credibility as a lot of the cops that are putting them in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like I, that's I, 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 that's the the issue of the credibility of the people that are on the other side from the cops to me that I've never that I've, I've been really struggling with like why why should we continue now that we have especially now that there is just so much blatant obvious evidence of it right I mean mm -hmm. it's been something that has been going on forever and I think that you know people particularly black people other people of color but anybody that's even paid a moderate amount of attention attention to what goes on has always kind of understood that like 
the, the system is very much rigged against you. If you get, oh, yeah. you go into the system, it's rigged against you, right? But why, you know, with the overwhelming amount of evidence we have at this point, why our newsrooms are continuing to say, yeah, okay, well, sure, obviously the system is rigged, but we're still going to just go ahead and go along with that part of it. We're going to give them the credibility to, to make these broad sweeping statements. Yeah, well, I mean, because I mean, they're often run by people that don't have these sort of interactions with law enforcement, right? They, they, they themselves didn't go through with it, nor did they have a lot of people within their family or within their social circle that have dealt with that. I mean, because, you know, we know what journalism is. I mean, it's not, it's not typically a job field of um, lower middle class people, right? Because it's a, it's a profession where you kind of come in knowing that you're not going to make a lot of money. And so you have to make a lot of sacrifices up front and, you know, taking internships that don't pay a lot or don't pay at all. And the only people that can really do that are people that come from money in and of itself. And so it's a, you know, journalism building on top of itself, you know, people that are from this very, you know, select group of schools, select kind of, you know, lifestyle, and they're sort of, you know, uh, cordoned off from the realities of the street and shit, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so, I mean, you know, you get up there and then, you know, I, I don't want to speak ill of Marty Baron or whoever the hell, you know, but I don't know what his social circle is like. And I, but I, I imagine he probably has not had the same interaction or knows a lot of the same people that has had the same interaction with the cops that I have. You know what I mean? Yeah. And been, uh, so, yeah, go ahead. But yeah. No, I was saying, I was saying, I, I've been, I've been kind of surprised at the number of, of like reporters and editors that have, have said most cops are, are good people that are, are doing, you know, who aren't doing bad things. And I'm like, that's not, a, a, that's totally immaterial, right? To what the question, the, the, the discussion is about, right? Like, like right. I'm not saying that we should, that, you know, we shouldn't trust cops because they're all bad. I'm saying, I don't understand why it is that we trust them to begin with. Why the, why we, like, defi why we default and defer to them, right? Defer yeah. to them, right, you know, but also like, okay, well, maybe if, you know, I mean, first of all, like, um, I can't remember who was on Twitter the other day said, you know, Katrina showed that the bad apples theory is a bunch of crap, mm -hmm. you know, like, cause like all the apples knew what those guys were doing and they didn't do nothing to stop it. Right. Everybody yeah. knew, like everybody knew what was up. And that's the truth is like, even if you are a good cop, even, you know, you're a bad cop if you're not like talking about this and like raising a holy hell about what the, all the bad cops are doing. Right. I mean, so then it's like, well, then why are we even, having this discussion like why don't we assume that they're lying to us all the time <laughs> yeah right but i mean that would just make that would make writing stories so much harder mm -hmm. especially on deadline that if we just if on we, deadline. you know what i mean and so like that that is always sort of it's not an intractable problem because there are ways around it but like that is sort of the the paradigm that we're always sort of dealing with when we mm -hmm. go cover a crime the police allege what happened maybe that person that has been accused doesn't have an attorney yet or they're out of, you know, we can't talk to them or they have no real reason to want to talk to media. And so it sort of perpetuates itself over and over again. And so like the police build up their credibility through all these media accounts. Um, and we don't find out till later maybe that, oh, that dude was lying. He planted something. Man, remember, oh, what, what was this? Was this in Baltimore last year where they uncovered all this video of cops planting shit on people, man, yeah. planting drugs on people. And with their, like their body cameras were catching. Yeah, with their body cameras, like, yeah. And it was just like, that seems absurd. Why mm -hmm. would they do that? But why wouldn't they do that? Because it's set up for the system to, for them to be believed and not, you know, 
there's not really any penalty for any of these guys lying in the first place. So of course that shit happens, but we just, it just takes a while for people to like come to understand that, you know, yeah. you've got to have the experience to do it too, you know? So um, before we move off, I guess like directly on the, on the protests, do you think, do, th- do these, does this feel different to you than in the past? Cause I, you know, a lot of people have, and I mean, I definitely, I think I've done this a little bit every once in a while on Twitter the last few days, it felt like, you know, feeling like Trump, and what he's, you know, how aggressively out there he is with his sort of like racist and crazy behavior, like has made it worse. But I mean, is, is, are things worse? And is what's going on with in terms of like how the, like the official reaction to the protests worse, you think, or not? Does it feel Man. different to you? It, it, it there's a, a few ways in which it feels different. Um, it feels different in that what happened to George Floyd was so egregious and um, it happened on camera for so long that there's not really a way that police officers and police agencies could talk their way into saying that that was a proper police tactic or whatever. You know what I mean? So like even police chiefs have come out and said, and you know, a few police unions have said that was egregious. That's not what we're about. Right. So like that, like in a top level sort of way, there's been a change, right? Um, but like in terms of what happened on the streets, this has been different because it happened, spot, you know, it all over the country at the same time. I don't remember it happening in quite the same way previously. Mm-hmm. Um, that part of it is different. It just seems like we're in chaos, but a lot of that is because the world, you know, the world is in chaos right now. The country is in a much different, much more bleak situation than it was even, you know, five or six years ago. But like, I'm, Maybe this is just like, you know, I'm cynical or whatever. I mean, I don't think it's going to change anything. Like, I think the news cycle is going to change in a couple of weeks. Something else is going to happen and we're going to sort of move on from it because that's just the way of the world, right? We burned down, you know, cities got burned down in 1968 and it did lead to some modicum of change, but fundamentally the problems that people had with policing never really did. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, then we went through LA riots, you know what I'm saying? Same shit, it was a lot of conversation and a lot of attention paid to it. And then we go to Ferguson, you know what I mean? And, and Michael Brown, like, so, I mean, I, the history of the country, the history of the way that we've handled this as media has shown us that eventually we, we have short attention spans and we'll sort of move on. But, you know, who, who's to say, um, you know, maybe, I, I guess I could kind of struggle to, to figure out like what would, even though this is is dramatically different in terms of the crime and the initial response to it, I struggle to think about like what 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 kind of change will actually come of it because I, I we just haven't seen it. It's happened so often and nothing has changed. It makes me just wonder, you know, what could we actually do differently this time? But I don't know. Maybe you have. Maybe you're more optimistic than me. No, okay. I'm not <laughs> at all. I mean, okay. I mean, I think the two things that, about it that feel a little bit different to me. Again, I think are the 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 <clears throat> the willingness of the cops to go fucking ham on reporters all yeah. across the country, kind of simultaneously. I don't like. I don't think that there was some kind of like the unions all got together and were like, okay, today's the day we're gonna like kick the crap out of reporters. But like, like everybody, it's clear that all the cops decided that Saturday was going to be the day that they were no longer going. They're going to take back their streets. Right. Yeah. Like, because, you know, they're the biggest gang in the country. Right. And that's right, what no. they did. 
That's a great point. Yeah, so because actually when you were asking me if I'm saying, I don't know why I immediately went to positive, but the going in negative, actually, you make a great point that, yes, they do seem more emboldened right now. Like, mm-hmm. to the extent that anything might change, it might be worse. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, like, the, like, that scares me, right? Especially with, like, Trump being like, we yeah. should sick dogs on people and yeah. all that. Like, it's, it's kind of like, you know, and did, like, the DOJ is now going to start arresting Antifa leaders, whatever the hell that means. Like, yeah, right, right. You know, it's like, what is, like, you know, like, what are you going to pick up, like, every white kid walking on the street with yeah, right. black pants on? I mean, that's insane. Right. But, you know. Yeah, no, no, you're but, right. You're absolutely right. It's terrifying. I mean, because, I, like, I, like, just watching this the last few days, I've just been like, oh, this is really scary, man. Like, and, you know, Trump has given cover for a lot of people um to sort of you know he's he's provided cover for a lot of people to embrace their hate and especially the law enforcement like i mean if you look at is i forget it's the sba nypd uh uh-huh. twitter account which is in fucking insane like they're saying things out loud on twitter these are law enforcement professionals who are threatening people doxing the mayor's daughter all this kind of shit they seem so much more unaccountable now than they ever did before Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like, I mean, it's really terrifying. I just like, the the, only, the one reason I want the protest to end right now is because I'm really afraid that the police are going to like take, escalate it to a level in which like, you know, so far as n- not many people have died during these protests or not, you know, as a dis- direct result of conflict. But I worry about the longer this goes on and the more, as you said, that, you know, that they're compelled to want to take back the streets and show force. And, you know, that just leads to some really ugly places. Yeah. I think you know, the one other thing that I have seen that is, is a positive change. I don't think it's actually going to happen. And I, I sadly think it's going to take a couple more rounds of this before we really have a serious conversation on it. But I've never seen anyone running for president, certainly, um, uh, let alone large members of both the house, well, the house of representatives talking about a national change to qualified immunity mm. to limit that for the police because that's why i mean like a lot of people don't understand and a lot of reporters don't understand that like cops can kill you yeah right like they did they have the ability to do that right like yeah, it's, right. Not, it's <laughs> not against the law for like for cops to kill you for no real reason right? right they can just sort of be like well i was arresting him and i killed him by accident oops and everyone will be like okay well that's you know like you know like you can't just be charged with like murder because you killed somebody like I, you and me just can't by accident kill somebody right like yeah like you know right <laughs> it doesn't work that way right but like, well, we at least got to come up with a good excuse you know what i'm saying like yeah. like an airtight one and even then it's kind of, it's like well you were in a position in which you killed a person so you still got to pay a price for it you know what i mean yeah like we've decided yeah. that like i mean like to me like the idea that like okay you have a gun mm-hmm. and you, so you have an ultimate responsibility to not actually use it in order to qualify for the the idea that sometimes you are going to have to kill somebody, right? Right. Like the the responsibility to kill a really to really kill somebody in a situation where that's justified, like uh, requires you to show restraint in all other aspects, right? Like right, right, you have right. to be the last dude to throw a punch. You have to be the last dude to like raise their voice, right? And instead. Like, I think that those laws have created a situation where the cops, like, you know, it used to be that, like, you know, the cops' first responsibility was to protect the public. And now, and I remember the cop union guy in Ferguson, I saw him on TV, I couldn't believe he said this. He said, a cop's first job is to get home safe. 
Yeah, right. Right, and it's like, no, bro, that's not your first job. That's not even like right. your third job. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, if that's the case, then like we're wasting a lot of like taxpayer money on pensions because like you you forfeit the right to just say, well, I'm just trying to get home where yeah. we fund pensions and give you all the money and like you you're you know your police department makes up you know a tremendous chunk of whatever municipal budget there is you know what i mean so yeah. you forfeit that but yeah like i mean that is all like that has become a line that you hear more and more and it's just like yo what happened to protect and serve right right those are like the first two right? Right. Like, right. and then making sure my ass gets home before, without dying <laughs> and then you worry about yourself man like, exactly otherwise why don't i just walk around with a gun yeah, exactly. Right. We all could be deputized that way. We don't need to come bring you and involve you if you could just kill, if you're just trying to get <laughs> yeah. home, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, but so I have been surprised, though, that like Joe Biden mentioned reforming that stuff. And it's been an issue that, you know, mainstream politicians have talked about, which, I, you know, I mean, I grew up going to like Mumia Abu Jabal, Jamal uh, protests, like people at those things talked about it. But like, right. you never heard like an elected official talk about about that. And so I think that's a, the biggest positive change that I've seen over the last week. But again, I don't know, I don't see anybody changing those laws anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, imagine the fight that that's going to be, you know, right, right. right. And, yeah. and, and the police are like a, an incredibly powerful political block of people. Um, and that's why they can dox the New York City mayor's daughter and kind of get away with it. And there's nothing you can do about it. You know what I mean? Like they're really, they, I mean, their immunity extends beyond the courtroom. Like they really are protected mm -hmm. in a way um, that is kind of terrifying. So yeah, I would love to see that happen, but man, yeah. yeah. I mean, we we have so much shit going on. Who's to say, I mean, what, what, what list of priorities is that going to take? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, so connected to all of this, but at a, on a different kind of topic that I definitely want to talk to you about uh, is, um, What's going on with our newsrooms, generally speaking, kind of right now? And I think that, like, I do think that, that what's going on with, with the protests that are going on and with COVID uh, highlight the, the bad aspect of this, right? That, like, you and I worked at BuzzFeed together. And when we were working at BuzzFeed, it was probably the most diverse national newsroom in the country at that time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And... Yeah. Um, it wasn't very diverse, but like, I mean, it was more diverse than most places, right? And I remember sure. when, when you and I were in the DC bureau, and it, like, I think you and um, Adam Butler, um, and Adam Serwer, and Hayes, were all in the bureau. And percentage wise, we had the, the largest black uh, percentage of reporters in a, in a DC bureau. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and I was like, that's fucking insane right like the like in dc of all in dc right right um and you know but the the collapse of the industry over the last like two or three years you know we've lost a lot of black journalists a lot of latino journalists um a lot of women like you know they're the last hired first fired right and yeah you know you get these issues these kind of stories where they are having a disproportional effect on people of color um and they're not, I still think they're getting covered in the way that they should be. And I'm curious to know if I'm being, uh, you know, my normal dour self. And hmm. I mean, what do you, what do you think of the general sort of state of things right now? Um, well, I mean, we, I think we can agree that in national media, right, that there, it wasn't nearly diverse or diverse enough. And that can only be exacerbated by 
um, all the layoffs and all the changes, you know, the shifts that we've seen in media in the last, I mean, really last 15 years, but certainly like since this pandemic started, you know I mean? Like we, I mean, this bit, it's, it's hurt even as, as bad as media was hurting uh, before the pandemic hit. I mean, it's so much worse now. And um, so, I mean, basically, I mean, that's really just, I don't know what media could do different at this point, you know? Um, you know, I mean, I, I I mean, because we, we, in a time when journalism operations were flush and had a little bit more cash, um, you know, like these conversations that we want to have about diversifying newsrooms, taking on certain initiatives, you know, they were difficult to have, but like we were able to have them and like maybe move some things. But now you're going back to newsrooms and you're going to newsroom leaders and saying, hey, we need to be more thoughtful about how we do this. And they're just like, man, I'm just trying to hold this shit together. Like this is all <laughs> falling apart. I need scotch. To, I, I can't afford scotch to take the tie this shit all together. So, um, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that, you know, media has covered this any differently or any worse than it did in 2014 or 15, because I think a lot of that I think is built on the foundation of the reporting that was done at that time. And so it has helped and it, it made some of the reporting on this better. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just wonder how sustainable it is with the way media is now, because you're gonna probably still lose more people, people that are gonna get laid off, people that can't afford to take low paying jobs in journalism or whatever. And, you don't have to move on and then you just wonder you know the next time this shit pops up or you know trump you know trump term three uh you know what you know who will be left uh to <laughs> to Man. cover and provide a check on that you know what i mean so yeah i you know i i think that right now media has done you know a slightly better job than they did previously um not as good as you would like but better i mean because again like when we started off we were talking about all the smash glass and all that shit and the focus on that but i think they have done better but i think it's just i don't know that it's sustainable the way that it is right now you know mm -hmm. um and that's that's what i worry about when you i mean, think you raise an interesting question that for me i mean i you know um again like to me like i, I felt like there was that moment it was very brief but for like a year or two maybe three where like there was a lot of money in the industry and you yeah. saw a lot of focus on at least people talking about diversity yeah. and there were some efforts in some newsrooms to change that. But, you know, I, I'm curious to know would, would, if you think that that actually had much of an impact ultimately on, on what, on the quality and, and the kind of journalism we were doing or was that, Oh, really up in the bucket. No, I definitely think, I mean, I, don't, I can't speak for everybody, right? Um, but I mean, definitely at BuzzFeed, man, like we were doing great shit during that like 2013 to, you know, 2016 moment. Like, right, it was, it was funny, like right up until Trump got elected. And then I just kind of felt like there was a shift, not only in the focus of newsrooms, um, but just, you know, in terms of the, you know, eventually, um, the money caught up to these journalists. I mean, I, I forget what year it was that everybody figured out that like Facebook was lying about, you know, yeah. the numbers you were getting, the people were getting on videos and the, the you know, the numbers of, of articles are being read, right? And so like, it seemed like after that, that, you know, it, the media took a real hard hit. But I definitely think that like during those years, that there was a lot of great journalism and a lot of, you know, interesting things that people were doing. Like I think of like topic stories that was started by Anna Holmes who used to be over at Jezebel, was one of the founders of Jezebel. And like, that, you know, 
I didn't read it all the time, but like what they were attempting to do was really unique and really cool. And like, there's just not money or resources for that kind of journalism anymore. Or like Mike, remember Mike, when Mike was a thing? Mm -hmm. And like, they had all these young, this young diverse newsroom and they were trying different shit. And you know, like that doesn't even exist anymore. Or um, no offense, I mean, if Mike, if Mike still exists, I don't know. You it know, or, does kind of, but yeah. Yeah, right, or not, not in the same way. No, or like, no. uh -uh. Or, or I mean, man, you know, like just, just this weekend, you know, Sports Illustrated revealed that they didn't even have a black staffer in, in the whole magazine at this point now, right? You know? Oh my God. Yeah, not, not one covering sports, you know? Um, so it's just like so much has changed and, you know, it's just eventually, of course, the quality of the stuff, the quality of stuff that they're doing now is not going to measure up to what we were doing two or three years ago because how could it, you know, it just can't. But yeah, that, we definitely had a cool moment, man. I mean, we had, you know, I'm just thinking about the National Desk at BuzzFeed. I mean, we had all kinds of cool different beats. You know, they really prioritized LGBTQ issues. Mm -hmm. One time, you know, Chris Geithner and Saeed were there. Um, you know, there was just all different manner of beats that we were covering and things we were looking into. And that that's just not there anymore, you know? People had to make choices. It's funny when when uh when Ben Smith called me to like to, to lay me off um, mm -hmm. last year, mm -hmm. what he he said to me he was like well you know um, the desk has done a bunch of really great work and blah 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 he's like but really um, nobody is that interested in it anymore right and you know to me I was like well. I don't think that that's true. <laughs> Certainly the people that we write about are fucking interested in it. Right. Um, but you know, we also had more and more readers, but I think that when he, what he was saying, I think ultimately was that management wasn't really interested in it anymore. Is it like, it, it, it was not, there was too, it cost too much money and it wasn't Donald Trump is doing crazy shit stories when we were writing. And so they were like, well, we don't want that anymore. It definitely, it, okay. So definitely, according to the resources they put into it and audience on the other side like maybe it didn't match up in the way that it did but you can also argue that that was a decision that management made right and that's all across the industry which is why you know me personally why i left and went to espn because i was like well i don't want to write about donald trump i just wasn't i you know i'm glad that there are people that are out there that give a shit about that and want to investigate every nook and cranny of his administration like i think that is a valuable public service the journalists are performing, but you know, it just seemed, I'll never forget, um, you know, we had a meeting, was early 2017, and you know, uh, the conversation was about how we can cover Donald Trump, you know, you know, and that was like, that was basically what the bulk of our efforts and focus were gonna be on for that year. And I was just like, oh, I'm not, I just need to try to figure out how to ride this out so I can go do something else. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Cause I just didn't want to do it. And I understand, I understand why they made that decision at that time, because it was turning, bringing in a lot of traffic, a lot of attention, so on and so forth. But yeah, man, I mean, it's like chicken and egg thing, right? Like did the management, did the did, did management decide that we're going to go all in on Trump and people, the interest dried up in national desk issues and, you know, stuff like, you know, police abuse and all that things that is sort of driven coverage before, or did, you know, did people just stop looking at it and the management look at it and be like, oh, we need to put our all our focus on Trump because that's what's paying big, big dividends. I don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, yeah. I think, it, yeah. I think, that, that, I think probably it was both things simultaneously happening. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, cause I mean, like, like when, when, when I got laid off, like we, like a week before I got laid off with the national desk had, um, our, our editors had sent like an email around to us and they were like, Hey, you know, we had, um, for like the fifth quarter in a row, we've like done, had a, had a, you know, double digit increase in readers and like, you know, like the data shows that people are reading toward, through to the end of the stories and like, you know, people were, were up for awards and, you know, and there, and, but what we wrote about ironically was what is people are yelling about now, right? Mm -hmm. Like we were writing about like official abuse of power, oh, and, yeah. like, local levels and state levels. And, and, you know, we were talking about this, this kind of stuff, but like, at that time, really like Donald Trump's corruption, that was the, the, the story that everyone cared about, but also management sunk a ton of money into us and we weren't making crazy amounts of money, even with increases in readership. It wasn't like we were a cash cow. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, I remember when I was on the national desk and it was just the resources we had and put into it was incredible. Like that just did not happen in journalism. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, you know like there was a point at which journalism was broke as fuck like when i worked for gannett and all these other places and like you couldn't go nowhere when i worked in atlanta like they cut their uh their coverage area to, down to like five counties and you know they didn't even cover the state anymore georgia's not that big you know yeah. um but then all of a sudden all this influx of you know vc cash comes in and these internet you know these, these online news sites you know had the money to go do that kind of shit like buzzfeed and we did all this great work we had all these resources and yeah i mean i don't know maybe maybe it's not possible to justify that but you just you, who who's to say what would have happened if we had just kept throwing money at it and and seeing if like the audience eventually caught up or you mm -hmm. know there was a way to tailor it but you know by the time anybody thought they needed to figure that out people were already being walked out of the door you know yeah. which just sucks yeah so um i have a question for you not on any of this but like i since you covered this a lot uh what do you think the change that uh, what kind of real long-term changes is COVID gonna have to sports shit that's a good question um man that's a great question i don't know man because you know I, all along when this first got started i was like well we're definitely going to see games this year because they need the money to get started. They need the distraction. And this is going to be too tempting for all these leagues and owners and TV executives. They're going to see this big, you know, patch of nothingness on TV. And they're just like, oh, if we can just get some of the real estate on TV, um, you know, we're going to do it. And I, it, it's really interesting because, like, after the last dance went off, like, that's when you just saw the spike in conversations about, oh, we can start up, you know, we're, we're trying to really furiously figure out how we can get back on the field because they saw the ratings that The Last Dance got on ESPN because nothing else was on fucking TV. And then, like, you saw all these conversations, you know, these escalated conversations about, okay, we're going to get started. We, we were targeting June. We're targeting July. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, college teams were talking about, you know, bringing guys in, you know, and having abbreviated seasons. So, um, you know, I don't know, man. I, I do wonder if um, – in terms of what might change, that's a great question, man. I, you know, I mean, I definitely think TV is going to be more important um, and a part of the equation. And in 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 gate the gate will be less so important, right? And that already mm -hmm. was sort of becoming a thing where you know, TV money, you know, 
funds all this shit, you know, so much of college football, so much of, you know, pro sports or whatever, like they're playing for big TV contracts. Like, you know, it's yeah. more of, it's more, you know, media packaging than anything than a lot of sports uh, experience uh, for, for, for most of these sports. So they'll probably, that'll probably double down on that. But I, you know, as much as anything, I think it's just going to remind people how much sports drives the conversation in this country. And uh, I, I think it's just going it, to, it's, it's pushing people to make really dangerous decisions right now um, as much as anything else. I think like that's the most immediate consequence of all this stuff is that people are just like, we need something to take our minds off of how fucking horrible the world is right now. And they're forcing <laughs> athletes in these leagues to make decisions to come back well before we should even be thinking about it. Like that's yeah. the, that's the big thing for me at least. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mean, that, that gets back to, to my, one of my longstanding issues with how we've been covering COVID, which, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about diversity in newsrooms. I think that, like, you know, living most of my life in, a, in black cities, um, mm-hmm. like, I, you know, I, I think I just, it's, it happens to me that I'm way more attuned to this stuff. But, like, I look around the way that the media has been covering COVID and the reopening, and I said to myself, you know what, if, like, most of these places were majority black reporters and editors, none mm-hmm. of this would be being talked about. They'd be like, what the hell are we talking about? Like, why would we possibly reopen anything? Like, you know, we're just barely now getting it so that like New Orleans is only having a few people die every day from this, you know, like, yeah. and we've been one of the most successful at the stay at home effort cities in the, in the country, you know, and it's like, yeah, cause they saw, cause they saw the human toll, you know what I mean? Like right. they saw it really early on. Right. 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 And I think, you know, like, yeah, like instead of like, well, maybe we can get back into some kind of a way soon. Cause you know, what happens when there's a huge spike then it's not like they're going to shut back down. Like they're oh. just going to be like, well, fuck it. Like yeah. let, the, let the black guys that are entertaining us die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, man, when I saw Patrick Ewing, I mean like Patrick Ewing getting sick with COVID like really brought it home for me. I'm like, Patrick Ewing is a 57 year old black man, you know, not in greatest shape as he used to be. And I'm like, you're, you're endangering. It's not just the athletes because it's not, you know, the athletes can't put on the games themselves. It's the support staff hotel staff, all these people that are going to be disproportionately black and brown that have to help them put these events on. Mm-hmm. And like, they're not even thinking about how it will affect these people and the people they have to go home to that they may get sick, you know, that, that they may infect and get sick, you know? Um, it's just it's just really dumb to me, man. You know, I'm a huge sports fan. I love football more. You know, that's, I don't have a lot of hobbies. I don't have a lot of interests, but football is one of them. Mm-hmm. And like, I could give a fuck, man. We don't have to have football this year. <laughs> you know, like, it yeah, doesn't, no. it yeah. doesn't have, it, this is something we don't have to do. Um, but I just kind of feel like because of what you said, that people are reckless and it maybe has not, you know, touched their lives, you know, personally yet. And they, you know, their most important concern is getting that money. You know, mm-hmm. there's money out there to be gotten. And they're just like, well, damn it. You know, if a couple guys have to get COVID, and get sick, you know, and risk their lung capacity for the rest of their life, then they're willing to do it, you know? Do you think, uh, uh, one thing I've thought about a lot about with sports is, is when they do finally come back, especially the first season of whatever, whenever that is or whatever that is, it's going to look like. Do you think that the, that the way that, 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 that the, not the quality, I don't, I don't want to say quality, but like, it's going to feel like 25 years ago in terms of their abilities. Cause like they haven't been training yeah. every day, right? Like they don't, like they don't, you know, like they haven't had, they haven't kept their bodies up to this, to this level that is, you know, 
superhuman, right? So they're going to go out there. They're going to be playing like Magic Johnson. No, stop. <laughs> no, you know, you know, you know what's crazy. So like, um, I don't know. I mean, what, I'm going to tell you that you don't have to worry about that because I don't know. I mean, this was a really horrible TV event. But when the ESPN uh, had horse, they had horse mm-hmm. between some NBA and WNBA players. And I'll never forget like the stark differences between the houses that the NBA players had and the WNBA players had. Uh-huh. Like Mike Conley had a legit gym at his house, like a basketball gym. You know uh-huh. what I mean? And uh, Zach Levine had this really nice outdoor court. And I'm like, oh, those dudes are working out. You know what I'm saying? Like we're going to see – like the, the one thing I'm, I'm, I'm worried about is like the early rash of like injuries just from – because even if you work out, it's totally different from playing. You know, there's yeah. nothing that can prepare you for playing. So you might see a lot of, you know, knee injuries, Achilles uh, shit uh-huh. early on because guys just have got fallen out and they're trying to rush them back now. But um, I could definitely see that happening. But like, oh, don't, don't, you know, don't get to those dudes. You know, LeBron got a CrossFit gym at his crib. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, and, 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 and a court. Uh, uh, but yeah, but like maybe the lower levels though, like you might see, you know, definitely college football, high school football, like that stuff might look totally different and bad early on because I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, those guys are not able to train the way that they, you know, would, yeah. would have otherwise. Yeah, yeah. college so, football for, for sure. They're, I mean, in, in high school, like they don't have gyms at home that they can use like that. Oh yeah, those guys, those people are going home, you know, you know, a lot of guys going home to situations with the, you know, not necessarily the kind of money or the resources that they had at school and they're just trying to get by and support their family or whatever. And, you know, working out where they're going to work out depending on where they live, you know? So yeah, you like definitely at the lower levels, it'll be interesting to see what the quality of ball will look like, but people kind of already accept that high school and college is not, you know, you know, they kind of accept that it's not pro ball. So they'll, maybe they'll overlook it early on, um, you know, but pro ball NBA, like when the NBA comes back, They'll be those dudes, you know. Shit, James Harden looked like he lost a lot of weight, which I, I eat of. Like <laughs> yeah. The house in quarantine, he lost weight, so good for him. Yeah, screw him. But I think I think I got all his weight, man. No, stop it, stop <laughs> it, stop it, stop it. You working out? I know you told me you, you've been hitting the gym a little bit. You know what I want to say? I want to see Le- LeBron come out looking like Will. No, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like if you get a little bit of a fro going and a beard. Yeah, well, he got. You know? I mean, his beard. He looks like. Um, Oh man, they, they not Delroy Lindo because he always looks like Delroy Lindo. <laughs> after man, it was somebody crazy. But his beard—I don't know if he's cut it or not. But yo, I was like, man, Bron. I mean, it was—it was like, oh, it's like LeBron. You know, I've always thought of LeBron as like this young phenom, and I was like, oh, he's a grown-ass old man right now. So, mm-hmm. all right, one more quick question for you, because uh, you have the worst taste in food of any person I've ever met. You don't, you don't eat no pig. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, would you take it up with Malcolm X, man? <laughs> <laughs> if only that was the reason. I might even remember yeah. how to blame. It, 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 you, I told you that that is the initial reason why I didn't eat pork, right? The initial reason, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you, and it's hard to get it back. You give up pork for you know a decade or whatever, man. It's just high, you know. I just oh, it tastes I, so good. Nah, nah. Oh, man, nah. Oh. I don't miss it. All right, well, so what is what what is uh has COVID uh had an effect on your diet? You eating anything these days? Like you've been like like six months ago, you've been like, nah, there's no way I'd ever eat that shit. Oh no, well you know it absolutely did because as you know, I uh I I mean 
I tested negative for COVID, but I likely had it, you know, yeah, yeah. for like, for like, so for most of April. So um, what, what happened when it first started, the way that we knew that my, uh, uh, there were two, two signals for why my taste was fucked up. It was one, we were eating Wingstop. Like we have like one cheat meal a week. We're eating Wingstop in here. I love Wingstop. And I remember I looked over to my wife and I was like, hey, um, does this taste like Lysol to you? And she was like, what? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, my taste is changing. And then I eat two bowls, two to three bowls of oatmeal every day. Yeah. And I just didn't want anything. So, you know, I, I was pretty sick for a while and, you know, lost 15 pounds or whatever during that time. But what has happened, though, is that, like, I have an uncontrollable sweet tooth, dog. So uh, we, wow. uh, we, we ordered this, this ice cream place in town called Cream. And they have like ice cream sandwiches and shit. And they got this cookie called Cream Fetty, which is basically just like little colorful sprinkles on the cookies and shit. And so I, we like, you know, all week long, I'm basically still eating that. You know what I mean? Like that is like my shit, like Cream Fetty cookies. Uh, I get, I have, you know, you know, my birthday was just the other day. And like, I wanted to go get an ice cream cookie sandwich, bro. Cause like, that is like, that is what, that's what I've gotten out of the, uh, out of the pandemic. That is like the taste that I've gotten, you know, I've, I've really been hitting the cookies hard, you know? Good Harder Lord. than I've been hitting the gym. Damn, yeah, that's saying yeah. something, bro. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's my, that's my shit. So wow. I, I really need to work on that. But yeah, man, like I've really, like, I've really gotten into cookies this year. Wow. This. Yeah. I'm, I'm still just into pork rinds and olives mostly. Man, I mean, see, man, get out of here, man. Get out of here, I, mean, I still remember when we were in the car in Mississippi and I opened up that bag of, of uh, salt vinegar pork rinds and the look on your face, I've never seen it. Holy anybody. smell. See, that's, <laughs> see, I'm telling you, 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 you talk shit about me not wanting to eat pork, but uh, it's the smell now. Like I, like, I can't even, it may taste good. I remember liking bacon when I was a kid, but I can't even get past the smell right now. Damn. So it's like chitlins or something like that, right? It just smells horrible, right? It ain't. It, I mean, chitlins is like a whole nother world. I mean, that does smell. Bad. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, you know, I I remember one time I got food from work, and uh, they accidentally put pork in my order. And before I could get, when I was driving, it, I could smell the pork in the packaging, and I I was getting sick. Oh my god. Yeah, I was like, what? And I, that's how I knew that they had fucked up my order. So yeah, man, I just. <laughs> I just can't do it, bro. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Uh, all right, SW. All right, uh, WP. I appreciate, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, course, stay safe out there. You too, uh, man. Yeah. Give, you uh, be give, careful. Take care of yourself down there. You know what I'm saying? Do what you need to do. Trying to. Trying to. Trying not to go crazy when I'm just in my house, in my house by myself for days on end. But you need to stay your ass in the house like the rest of us right now. You I'm know? saying. Be, uh, good. Oh, yeah. All right, brother. I appreciate it. All right, likewise, bro. Bye.